A BC woman, a woman from Surrey, says she plans on filing a complaint with the BC Human Rights Tribunal after she was told she could not go inside her local return it depot to drop off her recycling. She couldn't take her mobility scooter inside the depot. Take a listen to what she says happened when she went to that depot. So I went there to return my glass and he wouldn't let me in. And it was one of those days when my COPD was bad, my arthritis was bad, and I could barely walk six steps. But I still like to go in and do it myself. I don't want to be dependent on other people while I can do it myself. And he wouldn't let me in. He said, we have a no-bike policy. And I said, well, clearly, this is not a bike. It's a mobility scooter. I cannot walk very well and without it you know I'm helpless and he basically said well you know thank you for the information but get the scooter out now, a couple of days later, the two did reach a bit of a compromise. The owner of the Return It Depot, Dyson Che, told uh, Philippa Powers, who you just heard there, that he would have an employee come to the door anytime she brought her recycling, take the recycling, take it in and bring her refund money back to her. But she says that's not a good enough solution. My independence is so important to me, as it is to just about every other person who uses a wheelchair and a scooter. We don't want to have to depend on others to do for us. We want to feel that we're pulling our fair share, or at least I do. And um, no, I should be able to go in there if I want to. So let's bring in Paul Gilbert. He is with the BC Disability Caucus and joins us on the line this morning. Paul, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. What is your take when you hear that from Philippa Powers and you hear about this story? What is your response? Well, living independently and being included in the community is one of the rights under the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities that um, the government is right now working on bringing into law in in, in BC. And um, certainly she has the right to be independent and and to to participate in the community and just on an equal basis with others. There's no doubt. Uh, so do you think, so the reason given by the business owner, and I spoke with him as well, and I don't think he was trying to be mean or he was trying to to exclude people, but his point was he lived, he, when he started the business about, or when he bought the business about five years ago, it was, it's in a pretty rough area. He said there was a lot of crime, there was, he had to deal with gangsters and drug dealers, and a lot of people would come into the business and leave their bikes strewn about all around where people were trying to recycle, and they became a tripping hazard. So he put a blanket rule, you can't bring bikes, and I suppose he's put scooters in on that rule as well. What do you say to to that being his explanation as to why you can't come in with a mobility scooter? Well, it's unlikely that um, this woman, that woman, is going to be taking her taking her scooter in there and leaving it lying about so other people can trip over it. She's just she's using it as as legs. It's it's a completely different sort of circumstance. She 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 requires the scooter to get around, and um, so she's not going to be doing what he's fearing. <laughs> right. Uh, and I suppose the, the issue being it might still be if there were, say, if there were 20 people in there and three people on scooters, it could perhaps be a, a tripping hazard, but maybe not. Yes, it, it well, it, it can get congested, but that's, um, that's one of the factors of life. You have too many people in a, in a, in a, in a building that gets congested, regardless.
Uh, the compromise that they came up with, as as we heard there, or was that he said anytime she came to the depot, and it's not a huge depot. I mean, it's big enough to go in there with a scooter. It's not a huge depot. He said an employee would meet her right at the door and take the recycles in and bring her money. And her point was, well, that's not good enough because I want to be able, I can do it myself. I want to do it myself. What do you think about the compromise? It doesn't really work because people the and being independent it means not actually having to depend um, depend on others and and what uh, it's in any circumstance where people with disabilities have to are accessing the community anything that that makes them stop and and um and demand special treatment it, they they don't want that they don't want to stand out but and and the laws are on on the side of the people with disabilities so that uh, and in this case, too, uh, there was a, co- a, a comparison made. And I, well, I asked him this, too. I said, what if somebody comes with a child in a stroller? Obviously, you can't leave your child. You shouldn't you wouldn't be expect a uh, parent to leave their child in the parking lot in a scooter. Uh, same with if somebody in a wheelchair. Uh, you wouldn't expect them to not be able to come into the depot. And his point was, no, but that's different because in the case of a mobility scooter, there are days, and, and Philippa Powers said this, uh, when she's having a good day, she can walk a couple of blocks. Uh, she can certainly, she could certainly park the scooter outside and walk into the depot. Um, what about that idea that a mobility scooter, while it's a, an aid to walking, a lot of people that use them can still walk a little bit and can still get around without them? Well, that's that's true. But the problem is, how do you know that you're going to you're going to be able to walk? Um, the distance that you think you will. That the, the good the day is a good day, or and you're not going to get. Um, stranded partway in. Yeah. No, and I think it's something too that people people that don't have uh, mobility issues or don't don't think about mobility, you don't think about that. You think a good day is a good day, and a bad day is a bad day, and that that that's that it's pretty straightforward when it's not. Yes, it's it's. Um Life is nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> um, the current government right now is uh, doing uh, a bit of an engagement program. It started in uh, mid-September. It's going to the end of November, uh, getting feedback from people when it comes to uh, being inclusive, when it comes to uh, people, be, uh, places being accessible. Uh, do you think this is, is, is it a good practice or is it something that's needed in this province? Oh, desperately. Um, no, but, well, the, somebody who uses a, uses, a, uses a mobility device to get around knows knows that there's lots of places that they can't those sorts of things need to change but the the um the standards that they have to bring in are are they're all laid out in the convention on the rights of persons with disabilities and um very very uh, comprehensive um if people want to look at it as they can they can see it online anytime they like but uh, yes it's there's there's a lot that needs to be done do you think that people have this false idea that we are a very accessible province in that people make the assumption, and talking about people that don't have mobility issues, uh, people make the assumption that everywhere has uh, wheelchair access or everywhere is accessible? Yes, people do make that assumption. Uh, well, the lived, that's why the lived experience of persons with disabilities need to be included so that um, people, the, that, that lived experience comes to the table when, when making those dis- determinations. Because it, it cert- the world certainly isn't, very, isn't as accessible as people presume. And is there a difference in, because even covering this story, and, and I interviewed Philippa on uh, Friday, I believe it was, 
uh, I didn't realize, and she even talked about it. I mean, we were talking about one specific case of a business that uh, she wasn't allowed in, but she even said, you know, she could go on and on talking about places where the curb isn't made, isn't in the right way in that she has to go into traffic or she has to worry about going into traffic and, and being in dangerous situations. And there are certain businesses that she can't access. There was certainly much more um, to it, much more, uh, many other places where uh, accessibility just wasn't there. There. Yes, that that happens all the time. Uh, the actually, I was I was with a friend the other day, uh, and we went into a drugstore. She wanted to buy some makeup, and she couldn't go in the aisle where the makeup was and make her own ch- ch- selections because they put all sorts of displays in the middle of the aisle. So uh, she, there was just no room. So um, the 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 clerk in the store suggested that she go in and, and get the stuff and bring it out. Well. I don't know. I've known a few. I've known a few women who buy makeup, and uh, they don't generally don't want somebody else to make the choices for them. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a pretty personal choice. But um, and that's quite similar to to the story of the return at depot, and and it makes you think about so a business even with a sandwich board on a sidewalk, which could impede somebody's being able to get by. How do we find, or, or I suppose, what is reasonable accommodation in those cases? Up to undue hardship. Um, where where the um, where the the company's um, livelihood is at risk, there, there's there's ways of, of, of we've we've been working on accommodation for a long time. There are standards that uh, that are that are in place and and they they need to be followed. But it's universal design is something that everyone recognizes that we can do. It's just a matter of doing it. And do you think then, will this lead to some kind of change in that I think people might even be, or there might be some people who are surprised that we don't already have these rules in place or that there aren't laws in place as far as being accessible and being inclusive. Do you think this review that the province is doing, will it lead to that? It should. I I suspect it's going to take, I suspect that both federally and provincially, the, um, the what's what's being put in place will probably need um the the um need to be worked through the courts to some extent because i'm i'm not sure i, I can't see the government giving us all the rights without a little bit of a struggle <laughs> <laughs> which which i i suppose people can see that too in that i think already we're at that place when it comes to government buildings or at least there's the there's seems to be more of an awareness if we're talking about provincial buildings uh, government places whereas if you have a small business owner in a strip mall who's barely getting by and then you say well you need to bring this place up to code or you need to bring Bring in all of these different uh, accessibility requirements, then it becomes an issue too of hardship on a business owner. Oh, certainly, and and that's that's covered in in, in I mean that's that's part of the reason why it's undue hardship. But but certainly um, nobody wants to put small little little companies out of business. It's it's we're more that that sort of thing is is um, it. The rela- the relationship between the law and 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 people and, and businesses is 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 um well it's well established i mean there's no no reason that we, uh, businesses have to fear that um they're going to be put out of business because people are are need accessibility it's just a matter of if if regular people that walk can go through can go through aisles in their store so should people with disabilities be that use wheelchairs be able to go through aisles in their store it's just a it it 
it doesn't actually, it's not going to cost the money to have more people in their store. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm so glad you were able to join us today and join the conversation. Uh, we'll be continuing to talk about this. The review is continuing again until the end of November. Uh, Paul Gilbert, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. The previous government just went ahead with a very large bridge, a 10-lane bridge that um, was not what yeah, the metro region wanted. So we committed to consult with metro. What we've come here up now, uh, the result is that the metro, having been consulted, is they want a tunnel. That uh, was Transportation Minister Claire Trevena speaking this past week when it uh, was revealed that an eight-lane tunnel would be the preferred choice to replace the Massey Tunnel. And we're going to talk more about this a bit later on in the program. The Delta South MLA is going to join us right now, though. Eric Eberhardt is on the line with us, a geological engineering professor at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Yeah, good morning, Joe. Uh, you've talked about, or I've seen quotes about uh, your take on, on this being the preferred choice from an engineering point of view. Why is that? Well, I, I think it's a, you know, each of the different options are going to, of course, have their, their strengths, their their advantages in a sense, and, and then, of course, their disadvantages. And so in the evaluation, they're going to be looking at a, a large number of factors trying to come, come together in terms of, um, you know, the different pros and cons. And so... You know, I think anybody can argue about something that's favorable about one option over the other. I think it's looking at the total picture um, in terms of not short-term, but also long-term in terms of the benefits that the immersed tunnel brings. So what would the benefits be of an immersed tunnel over a bridge? Well, there's certainly, a, a, in terms of the longer term, uh, less of an impact in terms of uh, disturbance to the surface and, and to the environment. So you're taking that traffic and you're, you're putting it underground um, out of sight. And that sort of that does have a, a you know a good advantage, a significant advantage in terms of uh, improving the livability of of the city and the region. Uh, there have been concerns raised, though, about the idea of putting this on the the bed of the Fraser River of environmental concerns. So are there environmental concerns with placing another tunnel on the the floor of the river? Well, there will be during construction. It will require dredging and and other activities. I guess one thing that they do have is the advantage of 60 years of experience with the existing tunnel and, you know, the process that went into its construction, how it disturbed uh, the riverbed and what the long-term effect has been. So anytime you're able to do something um, that you've already done, there's, uh, you know, a lot of learning lessons that you can take with you uh, to improve on. And so that's one of the engineering advantages of, of an immersed tunnel is that you're able to follow something that has been done and you're, you're, you're able to take the lessons learned and improve on it. Uh, and you mentioned uh, the 60 years. So, so I think when people think of a new tunnel or an immersed tunnel, they think of the existing tunnel. But has technology changed or have building practices changed in that a tunnel that we build today, would it look different than the tunnel that's there? It wouldn't look significantly different. Um, there might be some added features in terms of safety, and uh, but even the existing tunnel would have been updated in terms of what was visible. Uh, the, the improvements to safety will probably be more along the lines of, of the seismic design. Uh, our, our seismic codes are, 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 are very strong in, in terms of what the requirements are. So a new tunnel would be designed to those new standards and, and, and safety uh, factors. Because that's one of the big concerns, I think, whenever anybody drives through that tunnel, even though you're only in there for a minute or two, uh, you think, oh my goodness, what if an earthquake hit while I was in here? 
Yeah, and again, when they, they evaluate the different pros and cons, um, you know, one of the options was also a board tunnel. And so if, if, if the seismic risk um, was significant enough that the immersed tunnel couldn't meet it, um, that would then start pushing or weighing, uh, you know, the board tunnel as, as a stronger option. A board tunnel would definitely be uh, generally safer in, in the case of a large earthquake. Uh, would a board tunnel, would it be even feasible or an option in when we're dealing with such a sandy riverbed and we're dealing with that kind of uh, makeup of the ground? Well, the board tunnel would then be having to be bored much deeper into, um, you know, stronger materials, uh, and that's that's what gives it sort of the increased seismic stability, but it will come at a much higher cost. And the geometry is such that with the deeper tunnel, you'd have to um, have the entrance and the exits, um, you know, set further back just to, to be able to um, cover the depth that you need to at a reasonable grade. And so, so I'm sure that's what one of the factors, including cost, that probably has disqualified that is, um, you know, uh, not as being as, as favorable as the immersed tunnel. And I, I haven't looked at this specifically, and I'm, I'm not sure if you know the answer to this. Is the the immersed tunnel the the one that's being proposed, the eight lane tunnel? Does it also include a, a space for bikes or pedestrians? Because that's also one of the big drawbacks currently is that you either have to wait for the bike uh, bike van to take you over, but there's no actual way for somebody not in a vehicle to get get across. You know, I don't know if they've gotten into that detailed sort of design, um, but one thing, one feature that is accompanying most modern tunnels now is sort of what we call um, an escape tunnel. So n- normally what you would have is, uh, in the event of some kind of traffic accident or fire in the tunnel, having a separate um, uh, separated tunnel to, to escape from. And, you know, depends on, on where you are, but some of the designs would use something like that as a pedestrian or bike tunnel um, for general use. And in the event of emergency, you have the option then um, to, for people to exit into that and, and to use that as the escape tunnel. Right. So, the, so, the, so there are different ways of, of, that they, might, they can design that. And I'm, I'm not sure what their detailed design is yet in terms of, of how to accommodate something like that. All right. Doesn't the current tunnel have that? I've always been reassured seeing the doors along there that there might be a way to get out if that was to happen. Yeah, it's, again, it's it's a it's a it's a feature, a common feature with with uh, a lot of modern tunnels um, and and even some of the older tunnels. Uh, one of the other uh, things that is being touted as why this is a better choice too is that it it's faster to build because the different parts of it can be built simultaneously. Is that something that that is a plus? Do you think for the design? Well, it's certainly a way of managing risk. Whenever you look at these large infrastructure projects, it's one thing to say here is what our our estimated cost is. You move into construction. And there's always some uncertainty, some unknown that, that you can encounter. And those are sort of the risk items that can add to the price tag of, of any major infrastructure project. So anytime you can do a lot of the construction on surface um, in, you know, like in a fabrication yard where you're building the tunnel sections uh, in, a, in a large yard where you have control, um, it certainly brings a lot of advantage in terms of, of mitigating that risk. And if you start falling behind schedule, and usually when you fall behind schedule, it's going to increase your costs. When you're doing something that's prefabricated, um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the measures can be taken in terms of how you can speed those up uh, in terms of, of, you know, doing extra work at the fabrication yard to get back onto schedule if you encounter something that puts you a little bit behind. So I think the, the immersed tunnel, because so much of it is of that work is being done in a controlled environment um, on surface, uh, probably brought a lot of the advantages um, 
at least in categories such as, you know, managing risk of, of, of delays or cost overruns. And one other issue that's been raised is uh, when dealing with a tunnel similar to what's there and building it and having it sit on the riverbed, uh, it will lead to or or it will uh, mean that certain ships won't be able to go up and down the river. Is that is that a fair assessment, do you think? Well, when they will have done their evaluation, I, I imagine one of the factors that would have worked against the immersed tunnel was any future um, interest in, in terms of dredging the river and deepening it for, for larger ships. So. Uh, with the tunnel, uh, the immersed tunnel sitting on the river, you know, in a trench in the river bottom, uh, obviously that's going to limit um, any future expansion of, of larger ships uh, using using that, you know, passing that section. So that must have gone into their their consideration in terms of weighing the different pros and cons, and um, that that future deepening of the river was maybe something that I guess didn't weigh as heavily as as the other factors that they were evaluating. All right. So we will leave it there. But uh, Eric Eberhardt, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. Well, there were many stroller brigades across BC yesterday. Many parents out making the plea for a national child care strategy, saying there needs to be a bigger commitment to the levels of funding for child care spaces, not just here in BC, but right across Canada. So what would that actually look like? And do we have any candidates or any parties at this point who are giving it the attention this group would like to see in the federal election? Well, Sharon Gregson is on the line with us, an advocate for $10 a day childcare. Sharon, thanks so much for being with us again. Good morning. My pleasure. Uh, Are you seeing anything in the federal campaign or is there any one particular party you think that uh, has taken this issue or is giving this issue enough attention? Well, I'm glad to say that actually three of the four parties have listened to the voters at their meeting on the doorstep. They know that there's a a huge crisis with childcare across much of our country. And so, yes, three of the four major parties have put forward significant child care commitments. And and, uh, so which one hasn't? So the Conservatives um, have sort of said they'll maintain current um, bilateral agreements and plans for payments, uh, but there are no additional commitments on top of that. All right. So with the current funding then, because it is one where some of the funding comes federally, but a lot of it is provincial as well. Where do you think or where is the focus then as far as calling for these spaces or or making sure that these spaces are in fact made? So we know that when parents go to work, um, they pay federal income tax. And when we spend money, we pay GST. So it's entirely appropriate that the federal government plays a role in investing in child care. In B.C., for the last year and a half, our provincial government has really stepped up to implement the $10-a-day plan, but we know they'll be able to do it faster and more thoroughly with a federal partner at the table. And so when we look at the commitments from three of the four federal parties, we're looking to see which one will give B.C. the best chance of implementing the rest of the 10-a-day plan. And that ranking is NDP, Green, and then Liberal, one, two, three. And when you say the provincial government has stepped up as far as implementing this plan, uh, there have been many announcements about the building of seats or the the um, sorry the the creation of childcare spaces. But has there actually been that creation? Yeah. So we're uh, they have funded because of course the provincial government doesn't actually 
build childcare spaces themselves. They give funding to um, other public bodies or not-for-profits or for-profit operators to build spaces. And so there have been about 10,000 of them created. They get into that 10,000 mark over the last two years. So that's great, but anybody who's on a waiting list will tell you that that's not nearly enough. And anybody who's still paying paying over $1,000 a month for childcare will tell you that it's still unaffordable. So there's much to do, um, despite a good start, and that's why we want to make sure that childcare is visible as a federal election issue as well. And what about the people who are actually hired to work in the, the facilities? Because if you're creating all of these spaces, clearly you need more workers as well. And from what I understand, it's extremely difficult finding enough people to fill those positions. That's exactly right. So we have always said, it's part of the $10 a day plan, that government has to invest on three streams simultaneously. Of course, we have to make sure the child care that we have is affordable. Of course, we need more spaces. But just as importantly, we have to invest in the ECE workforce. And that means um, decent wages and working conditions. And so that too has started, but not nearly far enough uh, to actually give people a decent wage for such important work. So we're just as loud advocating for investment in the ECE workforce as we are for more spaces. And and where do you see it going from here in that it seems like we've been having this conversation for a long time and while you said that yes there are more spaces and there are spaces being created uh, but it seems like the call for this uh, certainly uh, has been going on for for much longer uh, or it has been been something that's been called for for years without a whole lot of return. Well to be a childcare advocate is to be an eternal optimist. And it was in the 70s that the Royal Commission said that a national daycare strategy was important for women's equality. So, yes, it's been a long time. Um, but we're actually now making significant progress uh, with Budget 2018 in BC, the commitment of over a billion dollars to childcare. That really started to turn the tide to investing in a provincial childcare system here. We're the envy of much of the country at this point. Uh, and so the job now is to keep up the momentum and keep up the pressure on politicians at all levels. Uh, that childcare is important. It lets people go into the workforce, pay taxes. It's good for the economy and it's good for kids when they get a healthy start in life. Uh, and is the idea then that the system moving forward would, would be one that includes both, say, provincial child care facilities and private child care facilities, uh, the types that we've seen in people's homes as well? Or is there a, a, a shift or is there a, a preference for one? That's a very good question. It's something that people um, are unsure about. So I want to be really clear that the child care system that we're advocating for includes licensed group care, kind of the, the child care centers that people are aware of, and also licensed family child care. That's where somebody in their home can have um, health and safety standards that are that met by licensing and care for up to seven children or with a multi-age licensed care for up to eight children. So the system envisions both those models. And where do you see it going from here in uh, that we're only a couple of weeks away or getting closer to the federal election? Do you think it will get more attention? Well, um, that's what we hope for. Certainly the stroller brigades, 21 of them across British Columbia this weekend, have raised the profile of childcare as an important issue in, in all communities, right from Haida Gwaii to Fernie to Nelson to Richmond to Mission. 
Um, and so we want people to know that um, the NDP and the Greens are both committing $10 billion over the first four years of uh, of uh, being in government. Uh, but certainly they, they are pushing the agenda. The Liberals are committing to investment in school-age childcare. So absolutely politicians are talking about this on the doorstep. That's what we want to see. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. But Sharon, thank you so much. Always good to have you on the show. My pleasure. Take good care. Bye-bye now. We have been talking a little bit about the option put forward, the so-called preferred option for the replacement of the Massey Tunnel, another immersed tunnel. Certainly a lot of reaction. And coming up in the next half hour of the program, we are going to open up the phone lines and get your take on that. Right now, though, Ian Payton, who is the Delta South Liberal MLA, joins me on the line. Ian, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Good morning, Jill. Uh, I've read some of your comments, which I think uh, not a surprise at all. The one quote, uh, it makes no sense whatsoever talking about this proposal for the immersed tunnel. Uh, what else? Uh, what is your reaction to uh, what we uh, saw proposed uh, uh, this past week? Well, Jill, I, I got on the Delta City Council um, in 2010. And in 2013, of course, uh, the D.C. Liberal government just announced it that we would get relief from the aging George Massey Tunnel uh, with um, some engineering studies that would come up with the best option. And, of course, there was several major engineering firms that that put forward uh, their study results and 14,000 pages of technical reports and numerous, numerous, numerous uh, stakeholder meetings about the best option. And it always came out that a bridge was the best option for agriculture, for the environment, uh, and cost-wise. So everybody on Delta Council, including all the Delta Councilors, uh, the staff at Delta, uh, the mayor, the city manager, everybody bought in for years that the bridge was the very best option. And all of a sudden, at the last minute, uh, the new mayor completely changed his mind and said, no, we think we should have a tunnel in the river, which in 2019 is an environmental nightmare. And environmental nightmare, because uh, that was also the only person who voted uh, against it on that task force. So it was the the, the head of the Tawasan First Nations also bringing up environmental concerns. Uh, how do you think a tunnel is uh, more environmentally uh, harmful compared to a bridge? Well, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to look at 1959. And back then, you know, nobody really talked a lot about salmon and sturgeon and the environment and assessments and all those things. And in 1959, there's very little traffic on the Fraser River other than a few commercial fishing boats. So now, in, in the year 2019 or 2020, um, it's, an, uh, you know, it's agree- outrageous to think that you would plunk a massive concrete tube in the bottom of the Fraser River, a concrete tube that could be uh, 100 meters in width, uh, you'd have to dig a trench in the bottom of the Fraser River just to, to set this huge concrete tube in there. And, of course, all the uh, the damage that would be placed to spawning salmon, smolts, um, uh, oolicans, the sturgeon population. So uh, I was so proud of Chief Ken Baird, for, Ken Baird from Tawasan First Nation, who stood up and said, no, this is totally wrong. This is what have you know, he was even on board for years with the city of Delta that the bridge was the best option. And he said his people want to see the health of the Fraser River and 
plunking a massive tube in the river just doesn't cut it with TFN. Uh, the option before, and uh, and you've mentioned this as well, and anybody that drives in that area, you'll still see the sand. You can still see the work that was done to build the first bridge, the bridge that uh, residents were told was going to be put there. Uh, in making the announcement on Wednesday, uh, the transportation minister said that that bridge was overbuilt and it was too much. It was too big. So why was there not a bigger push, do you think, to scale it back then, say, make an eight-lane bridge instead of a 10-lane? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I always figured, well, if the NDP, when they came into power, if they had any sort of sense, they would say, look, all the engineering studies have been done by the BC Liberal Party. Um, all the stakeholder meetings have taken place. The environmental assessments taken place. It's good to go. All the pedestals are going to go on the land and not in the river. So we can get going. And, and if they just said, look, we, we, we won't go along with your 10-lane bridge, but let's get going with an 8-lane bridge, then all that sand and the piles and the hydro lines that have been moved, there was $80 million spent already. We could have moved forward. This bridge would be more than half built right now if they just, you know, trimmed it down from 10 lanes to 8 lanes. But if you've heard in the last few days, more and more people are saying, well, think about it for a minute. If there's only three lanes of, of traffic for commuters going north and south every morning, we've already got that with the counterflow in. So really, we're not expanding the, the lanes for commuters by that much. No, and it's still, anybody that drives that knows that even with the three lanes, it's still quite a bottleneck. Uh, is it a question of money? Because the original bridge, the 10-lane bridge, would have been told, much like the Portman had been told, and, and, and it was the previous Liberal government that, uh, that had approved this with tolls. Do you think it's a question of money in that if they were to go ahead with that bridge, the money wasn't there? Well, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the list, in, in two and a half years since the NDP got into to government it is christmas morning almost every week with announcements of we're going to do this we're going to send a billion here a billion there on on replacement of uh, different hospital things and, and whatnot which is all wonderful but they're all announcements and suddenly there's like whoa how many billions have they promised for the next 10 years in in uh, infrastructure improvements and there's absolutely no way they have uh, money for this this replacement of the George Massey Tunnel. In fact, they the smile on Claire Trevenny's face was in, unbelievable because these mayors uh, that voted on this actually just walked right into the NDP trap and they they put forward a, a a proposal which will kill this thing for at least another ten years. So they will not have to spend the money. So, and, and money, to me, was an interesting point as well. So the original bridge, the 10-lane bridge that the work had already started on, uh, tens of millions of dollars already spent, the price tag on that was $3.5 billion. So do we know what the price tag could possibly be for this eight-lane tunnel? Well, Jill, you're right. The 10-lane the bridge, of course, it was massive. Um, this is interesting. There was a, 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 an office in Richmond with these massive scale models of what the whole new bridge and highway improvements would look like. Delta was so totally into it, they asked that the models get moved to Delta City Hall for six months so people could see how proud we were of the fact that Delta backed the bridge proposal. So I don't know what's happened with this flip-flop, but getting back to your question, yeah, the, the proposal originally was going to be $3.5 billion. The final bid came in at $2.6 billion. Uh, to build this bridge with all the highway improvements and a whole bunch of new overpasses along Highway 99. So, um, yeah, it's it's 
quite shocking that uh, there was $80 million spent already. And as you've said, there's 600,000 tons of sand growing the most terrible looking blackberries and thistles. It's just an eyesore all along Highway 99 right now with the, the sand. And of course, there's these massive steel piles that are just laying on the side of Highway 99 that were there and ready to be driven into the ground as friction piles to support uh, the bridge, the new bridge. And the price tag, from what I understand, for the eight-lane tunnel is is three point five billion to five billion. It's not as though it's a cheaper alternative. The money still has to come from somewhere. Absolutely, and you know, I went to the mayor's meeting the other day, and this is what really shocks me at the mayor's task force meeting where they made this announcement. This is a multi-billion-dollar project, and and two of the mayors didn't even show up. Uh, Kennedy Stewart from Vancouver and Doug McCallum didn't even show up. So there's a grand total of five mayors, a director, Sav Dollywall, and another director, Ken Baird from TFN. Out of the seven of them, they decided, um, you know, okay, sure, uh, we have no (laughs) engineering experience. But as mayors, um, we think that a tunnel in the river is the best idea. Um, End of sentence. Which also, and I mean, I I get that this isn't the biggest issue, but for anybody that drives that route, you also know that part of the reason it is such a huge bottleneck is because it's a tunnel. The speed limit is 80. I I, I lost count decades ago how many times I've been behind somebody who slows down to 60 in that tunnel. Uh, There's no room for cyclists or pedestrians. They can't go across. It just, there are so many limitations, it seems, to a tunnel versus a bridge. You know, Jill, um, that's such a good point. Even like on Delta City Council, we had so many reports from the, the city manager, uh, staff reports that all said, including massive reports from our fire department. So our own fire department said there's no way we want another tunnel because first responders have to be able to get into a tunnel. And if there's a major accident, it's nothing but clogged up with cars with a fire going on inside the tunnel. And they do not want to go in there. For safety reasons, they can't even get in there with fire trucks. They have to go in on foot. The other thing I'll comment on, why is it that all the way from Hope to North Vancouver in the Fraser Valley, we have 14 major bridges, the Agassiz Bridge, the Mission Bridge, the Portman, the Lionsgate. They're all bridges. Why why is there suddenly one tunnel, and there's no other tunnels all over British Columbia, but for some reason, this particular crossing, people think seem to think it needs to have a tunnel and not a bridge. Uh, yeah, and I've, I've not heard anyone answer that question. Yeah. I mean, why aren't there more tunnels in D.C. if they're such a wonderful thing? But environmentally, oh, my goodness. I mean, the environmental assessment would take one look at a massive concrete tube plunked in the Fraser River, and they would turn that thing down immediately, I would think. So, you know, unfortunately, folks, if you're listening and use that tunnel every day, uh, good luck, because you're going to be using that same tunnel for 10 years now. All right. So we will leave it there. Uh, Ian Payton, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate uh, you coming on the show to talk about this today. Thank you. You're very welcome, Jill. And I know you're out from my area, so you feel the pain like I do going through that tunnel. So, so, anyways, thanks for having me. So since you woke up this morning, how many times have you checked your phone or done something on the phone? Has it been in your hand the entire time? What about the other digital devices we have in our lives? And if someone asked you, are you addicted 
to technology, what would you say? Well, some new research is taking a look at that exact thing, addictive devices, and if it's even possible that we can unplug from what many describe as an epidemic. Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Leyland Pitt, an SFU BD professor who has researched uh, researched this and published uh, a new article on this. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, and good morning. How big of a problem do you think it is, the idea or this uh, digital addiction? I think it's a, a pretty significant problem. I think there's uh, all over the world people are are addicted to devices, and they're addicted to the digital experiences that they have on these devices. Uh, so I think, it's a, I think it's a significant problem. Is there a way to define it? Is it uh, the amount of time that you spend on your phone or on a device? Or is it your physical reaction if you've gone an hour or a day without being on it? Or how do we actually define a digital addiction? Uh, digital addiction, I would say, is, is habitual behavior that means you pretty much can't do without your digital devices, uh, such as your smartphone, um, I, I took your call this morning on my smartwatch, so I'm as bad as anyone else. Um, and so, so it's, it's behavior that we, that has negative consequences and that we pretty much can't do without. Uh, that's not to say everyone is addicted to their devices, but there are large numbers of people who are, um, I would say morbidly addicted to their, to their devices. Is it the behavior as well, the choices that we make in that if you, say, check a text message in a movie theater, hopefully you realize you're being a bit rude because the screen lights up and you might be disturbing somebody sitting next to you. But that's different from if you're checking a text message while cruising down the freeway. Hopefully you also know that you're putting your life in danger and perhaps somebody else's life in danger as well. So does that kind of lead to, or is that part of the addiction that we do that behavior even though we know it's wrong? Uh, certainly. I, and I think what you've done now is effectively de- describe two different kinds of behavior. Uh, one is, is behavior that is socially damaging. It, uh, you know, that damages our social relationships. Uh, kids uh, who are, are not listening to their parents because they're on their digital devices or parents who are ignoring their kids and perhaps each other uh, while they're on their devices. So these have social and relationship issues. But there are also certainly some serious uh, physical consequences to to our addiction. Uh, Distracted driving is obviously one, but if you uh, have a look at the streets of our city, people are walking down the street, not looking where they're going and walking into each other, which is funny. Uh, and walking across red lights and into cars, which is not funny and is really dangerous. So um, there's, there's two aspects to it. One is, is certainly social and, and relationship, and the other is, is physical danger that, that these devices can cause. And that is something, I'm glad you brought that up, because it does seem more and more you can walk down the street and there are people doing exactly what you just described, their heads down in the phone, texting whatever they're doing and walking and not paying any attention to what's going on around them. How do you think we got to that point in that there's nothing I can think of, even say 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if you were reading a really good book and you were immersed in this book, that didn't mean you took it with you and read it while you were going down the street. So what has got us to this point where people think it's okay to do that? I think it's just because it's so easy to do. Our devices are always on. They're always with us. They're really appealing visually and physically to hold in our hands. 
Uh, a lot of it has been designed into our devices. Um, I certainly think the hardware manufacturers and and software app producers are complicit in this. This is not. This didn't just happen by accident. Uh, so that leads to the question then if somebody do we need to unplug or if so how do we unplug that's the the hundred million dollar question how do we unplug because i know we all say we should but very few of us would uh for example apple this year uh put out uh an addition to the operating system where you can instruct your phone uh to time you and 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 then to cut you out after you've had it in your hands for a, a certain number of hours or if you've been using it for a certain number of hours. I don't know anyone who's installed that option on their phone. I know I haven't. <laughs> no, but and it also thinks, you know, we're adults. Should we not be able to? I, even, I have friends who say, oh, well, the, what I do when driving is I put the phone in the back seat so it's not tempting. And my response is always, or you could put on your big girl, your big boy pants and not touch it while you're driving. We, we know exactly. better. Of course we should know better than to do that. Uh, I, you know, most of us are probably not addicted. Um, I think that the, the true addiction is, is probably a very small percentage. Uh, but there are certainly physical manifestations of, our, of people's addiction. There's increased perspiration, increased body temperature, uh, higher blood pressure, um, excretions of, of cortisol into the into the blood system as a result of our stress when we can't have our devices, uh, it is there. It's, it's, a, it's a real thing. Right, and which, which are signs of anxiety. People will be anxious if you're away from your phone, I would imagine, or if you go, because there are some places too, uh, there have been some concerts and, and such where you have to relinquish your phone when, when you get there. And uh, we've heard those stories, haven't we, that uh, it leads to anxiety and people will get through it, but maybe just barely. And you find in the last half of the concert or what have you, you're just thinking about getting your phone back in your hands. Exactly, and people who leave concerts early so that they can get to their phone first. So it, it seems, like you said, this it didn't happen by accident. These phones and apps and things are designed to make us like them, to make life easier, to keep us connected. Uh, so is it going to get worse, do you think? I, I, I can't see it getting better in the short term, um, unless there's some kind of policy made out by governments or uh, or authorities i can't see it getting better uh the 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 producers of these of these products uh do have it in their own interest to make sure that uh the negative consequences of these are not too severe and i think that's one of the reasons why apple at least said well we've tried to do something about it uh whether it's going to work i'm i'm less optimistic and it sounds ridiculous, although we have seen in some places, I believe, people uh, being ticketed or being at least warned of the walking, the dangerous walking, or I suppose it would be the equivalent of driving with undue care and attention, walking with undue care and attention. I mean, do we have to go down the road of it's illegal and you could be ticketed? I, I could I could see that coming, especially in crowded cities, or there are perhaps other solutions to it. I know there are some large cities in China now that have dedicated walking lanes uh, or dedicated lanes for, for people who are on their devices. So if you want to be on your device texting or reading the news or, or doing whatever it is that you're doing on your device, you have to choose a particular lane so that you don't get in the way of other pedestrians who are not using their devices. But of course, these things have to be policed and, and whether we have the resources and the willingness 
not only to police these things, but to enforce any kinds of, uh, of punishments for, for transgressions is, is another issue, of course, altogether. And we haven't even touched on the fact that it's, uh, it has an impact on productivity at work, uh, whether people are on social media sites or on their phones and not doing the task at hand. It has implications for health. If you stay up on your phone all night and you don't get sleep, it just seems like there are, there are consequences in so many different places. There are enormous consequences, as you pointed out, the, the, the lost productivity that must be occurring because people are on social media uh, at work when they should be doing their work. Um, and, of course, the, uh, the, the, the loss of sleep that occurs, the uh, relationship issues, people not talking to each other, couples going out for dinner uh, and then talking to people in other parts of the world instead of to each other. Uh, kids being ignored by their parents or parents being ignored by their kids. Uh, the, the consequences are, 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 are pretty sad, I think. Um, and they are definitely. And especially when you see, I think, if you walk into a restaurant and you see a family sitting there and everybody's on their phone, or even if you see a couple or a group of friends and everyone's on their phone and they're not talking to each other. Uh, but on the flip side of that, it seems, are we over... Uh, over uh, are we remembering things correctly in that did we really come from a place where we were constantly talking to each other and engaged and involved and looking into each other's eyes? Or are we kind of romanticizing how connected we were before technology came into our lives? I, I think to some extent we might be romanticizing. But, you know, at, before, before we had smartphones, we did go out to dinner and, and at least stare at each other or, or try to talk to each other. Whereas now there's a very good excuse not to talk to each other. Uh, because I've got, I'm busy and I'm on my phone, or I'm checking the the sports scores, or I'm uh, seeing how my stocks are going, or I'm uh, playing a game, or something like that. And uh, you know, it just gives us one more one more reason not to be sociable. So, what do you think? What can people do? And like you said, it might be a smaller number of people who are who are actually addicted, uh, but the rest of us kind of use it, or, or a bigger bigger number of people are are using it as convenience and because it's there. So, is it people, individuals that need to recognize this and take steps to perhaps remedy it? I think I think uh, certainly among adults that 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 is something we really should do. Uh, you know, to say if we're going to go out tonight, let's promise uh, promise each other we're not going to uh, be on our phones or checking messages. We'll have our phones with us in case there's an emergency. Uh, but uh, you can you can you can set up your device so that only certain people can call you at certain times, and we'll agree that that that's what we will do this evening when we go out for dinner, uh, so that we do talk to each other. And you know, I think it was Norman Mailer who once said, "Relationships that don't get better get worse." Um, that's probably the way to think about it. And let's make conscious efforts, certainly uh, in family situations, couple situations and, and, and social situations. Uh, I, I've, seen, I've known groups of friends go out for dinner and say, all right, we'll all put our phones in a, in a basket here and, and, and leave them and, and only pick them up when we go out. There are certain things that I think we can do to modify our behavior. All right. Well, it's very interesting research. And thank you so much for joining us to talk about it this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. 
Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.